We've been in a series called, Is Your God Too Small? And I just want to begin talking about a, a theology that's out there that really impacts millions and millions of people. And you, many of you will know what the terms are, and the technical name for this theology is called the Prosperity Gospel, or Health and Wealth, or Word of Faith. And the basic premise is this, is that that it's God's will for you to have abundant financial blessings. And it kind of goes like this, as, as man does his part and through faith and obedience and as he gives back to God, now usually it's to the, the, the church that's preaching this, but then God is obligated to do his part and increase one's material wealth. And it really is, is based on some faulty uh, interpretations in the scriptures, uh, emphasized, especially it comes out of uh, Malachi a bit, and even the, the covenant to Abraham's coming, is, that's kind of the roots of it. But here's where it's so challenging in that doctrine and that theology. When you, when you hear and listen to teaching, some of this teaching is very blatant. It's kind of in your face, and Deanna and I actually stopped at a church one time coming back you know, from Seattle, and we were finding a church to go to and ended up at a church like this, and it was, it was pretty interesting. But at other times, I would argue that the teaching is very subtle. Why? Because I think there's aspects, many times we look at some of these teachers and we go, yeah, this, I can agree with this. But below the surface, there's this idea that if I do this, then God has to give me wealth or prosperity in some sense. And, and, and I think the challenge for us is to have discernment as we read and as we study and we read books and such. But before I, you know, I, get, I throw too many stones at this, I have to tell you that even within evangelical churches like ours, we can view God in a nuanced way that really almost fits with that kind of theology. It's a view of God that, frankly, is attractive for people and it impacts how people live, but it's representative of a small view of God that we want to go down and look at today. And for your notes, if you're filling in the notes there, I said a small God, we want a Heavenly Father that will make us successful. He becomes the God of success. Now, here's the trick. In evangelicals, success, we know, doesn't really have to do with money. But it involves other aspects of our lives that's very subtle. So today's message, uh, it was a challenge studying because it's a bit more complicated and very subtle. You know, you can go to any large Christian bookstore. From time to time, if I get to Minneapolis, I'll go to one of their large bookstores and just walk through the aisles. And it's fun to do, but you will see an abundance of books, that, frankly, that have small views of God. But this idea today, that I would do my part, and then, God, you have to come through for me. It's a very subtle teaching. And oftentimes, I have to say it this way, the way it's written is often, there's a phrase that, that, that it can be used correctly or incorrectly, but a lot of times incorrectly, it's this phrase. We talk about the promises of God. And often specifically, it's about claiming them 
in some way. Now, I want to show you a verse where oftentimes you can take that idea and really use it out of context. 2 Chronicles 26.5. Look what it says there. This is uh, King Uzziah. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Now, oftentimes what will happen, people will read a verse like this, and they view it, then they translate it over into our life, and they go, well, this is a promise for us. And I go, that's a bad interpretation of history. Now, let me give you some examples, kind of how it plays out, though, for us. It's like this. You know what? If I pray for my unbelieving husband just the right way, God's going to promise that he's going to come to faith. I'm going to claim that as a promise. Or maybe even a spiritual giant. If I parent just the right way, and I pray just the right way for my kids, they're going to come to a deep faith. Or if I read my Bible enough, he promised that he's going to bless me in some way. Or if I go to church and sing songs and worship, God's going to honor that and he's going to do this for me. You can kind of fill in the blank, whatever that is. But you understand, there's a formula around this small view of God. And I want to just put that on the screen. It's not in your notes, but here's the formula. God, if if I do my part... You must do your part. See, if we do our part, God will give us, now we know, not necessarily money, we understand that, but he needs to give us happiness, success, fulfillment. And you go, who doesn't want happiness and success and a smooth life? And understand that word success isn't an evil word. It's not at all. But the challenge here is that oftentimes when you get to, God, we want you to be, give me success, oftentimes we don't realize how much the world and sometimes even the flesh is forcing us to define what success is. I want to put another statement on the screen. See, our definition of God is shaped by what we value and put our energy and effort toward. See, the challenge is, at times, if we're allowing the world to influence our values, what's important? All of a sudden, that begins to get translated onto God. And he becomes a small God at that point. Last week... Last Sunday, I ended up taking a long nap, and I, I shouldn't do that, because then you, you, know, you know how when you get old, you can't sleep at night? Um, I don't know if anybody's like that, like I do, but so I couldn't sleep, and so I got up and just, I was reading some uh, articles even for, for today's sermon, and I came across a study on, on the changes that young people, the values of young people, and how it influences, and actually how television influences. But the study from UCLA was looking at the age category between 9 and 11 and the shows that they were watching on television and what those shows were valuing, what was important in those shows. And I want to read you a portion. After I read it, I go, this is really frightening. Let me just read some of it. I don't have it on the screen, but here's what they said. Being famous 
is now the number one value emphasized by television shows popular with 9 to 11 years of age, according to a recent study by UCLA psychologists. On a list of 16 values, fame jumped from 15th in both 87 and 97 to 1st in 2007. From 1997 to 2007, the quality of benevolence, meaning being kind to other people, fell from 2nd to 13th on benevolence. The study assessed the values of of popular television shows in each decade from 1967 to 2007. And here's the guy talking. He said, I was shocked especially by the dramatic changes in the last 10 years, says the researcher in developmental psychology and the lead author of the study. I thought fame would be important, but did not expect this drastic of an increase in such a dramatic decrease in other values, such as community. If you believe, as I do, that television reflects the culture, then American culture has changed drastically. Community feeling, being part of a group, was the top value in 1967, 77, and 97, and number two in 1987. But by 2007, it had fallen out of the top 10 to number 11. Do you understand what that says? That the value of kids saying, I want to be a part of a group, is not even in the top 10 right now. The rise of fame in preteen television may be one influence in the documented rise of narcissism in our culture, explains a study senior author Patricia M. Greenfield. Popular television shows are part of the environment that causes the increased narcissism, but they also reflect the culture. They both reflect it and serve as a powerful change force for the next generation. The top five values in 2007 were fame, number one, achievement, popularity, image, and financial success. In 1997, the top five were community feeling, benevolence, image, tradition, and self-acceptance. In 2007, it said benevolence dropped to 12th, community feeling to 11th, financial success went from 12th in 1967 to 5th in 2007. The, The two least emphasized values in 2007 were spiritualism and tradition which was tradition was ranked fourth in 1997. I would submit to you it's a pretty disturbing study that speaks to where families and kids are moving. But let me throw this in the spiritual world. For your notes, there's really two questions, I think, that we have to struggle with. And the first one, this important question, deep down, do we want a God that will make us successful? When we walk through life, as we look at God, as we examine our prayer life, is that what we really want? Or do we really want him to say, God, make me holy, transform my soul? And then there's this million-dollar question. And I think this is the issue. What is success? 
in the life of a Christian? How would you determine what is success? See, what you determine, what I determine to be successful will shape what we want from God. It will determine what God is supposed to do for us. But do we catch this this, this subtle fantasy of success deep down? It can invade all of us in in nuanced ways. Uh, As a matter of fact, sometimes you just talk to pastors. and, And you talk to a pastor where the church is shrinking. Do you know what success is for them? A church is growing. Do you catch that? See, the, the challenge is, what is successful even as a church is a very difficult question. You know, is success having enough money to do what we want? Is that how we would measure it as a church? Or, or maybe, what if we have the best chairs in town? We got nice chairs. Is that successful? Or is it having the best programs in town or the best worship music or the biggest church? You see, even within churches, there's these definitions of success. And pastors and church leaders can fall into a trap and we want God to make us successful as we determine success. But every ch- the challenge for the church is to come back and ask the question, what does God want? What do the scriptures speak toward? And yes, I understand there's churches that kind of bury their heads in the sand and never ask the question why they're shrinking. And I think there's, I've even heard the attitude, well, you know, we're preaching the word, that's why everybody's leaving. I go, oh man, be careful. But the real question, what does God want, even for us as a church, but even put that again into the family world? What does God want for you and your family? What is success for you? See, in our culture, the challenge is is that oftentimes the culture can seep in. And we have this idea that if we're the best, if we're number one, then we're successful at work, at play, at sports. Do you realize that being number one was really started by Satan? You know that? Just read Isaiah chapter 14. He looked at God, and God was number one. And what do you say? I want to move on top of the mountain. I, I, I was thinking back to this idea that we want to win, and we want to be number one. And I, I was thinking back to we, grade school. I, I, lived, I grew up in a one-room schoolhouse, and they'd push snow together. And what we'd do is we'd pay king of the mountain. Anybody ever do that out in the snow? You go up on top, everybody start up on top, and you just started flinging people off. Do they do that in the schoolyards anymore? Probably not. <laughs> okay, it was a lot of fun. Because a lot of times I got to be king of the mountain, especially as I got older. But see, what is being number one? What does it really mean? You know, is it mean, you know, in, in the kids' world, does it mean that I'm the first one chosen or I'm the one doing the choosing? Or being the best? Now let me give you the problem of success in in your notes. See, worldly success can often feed the soul 
and it, in turn, it shapes the kind of God we want. See, there's this line that we can cross where we begin to want God. God, would you give us success how the world defines it? And then we begin to believe that God should give it to us if we pray the right way. And we begin to barter and negotiate with him. God, if I do this, then God, you'll give it to me, right? You know, and for pastors, I just got to preach the word faithfully and then you're going to grow the church, right? I'm praying for my husband and my child. And God, I'm expecting you then to change them. Um, I don't know why. I just had a great burden for parents the last number of months. And I got to throw a question at you that are parents here. And I think it's one of the most challenging questions that parents need to wrestle with. It's this. What is success for my family? How would you define that? How do you find success? Because here's the deal. As a parent, we subtly communicate what it is to a child who's 6, 8, 10, 16. And if you go back to that study, you understand what's happening in the young people world out there is they're viewing it as fame, achievement, popularity, image, and financial success. You know, if you're a high school student, I just say, pause and go, what do I consider successful? You know, I think that parenting is probably harder now than ever before. And oftentimes I think we that are a bit older, we can make the statement, you know, if they would just parent like the good old days. Duct tape in a closet, right? <laughs> I better cut that out. I'll get in trouble. No, I didn't use that. It is hard uh, and I, I think 25, 30 years ago, I don't think, uh, looking back, I don't think I had the, Deanna and I didn't have the competition for some things and, and, and that there was people and organizations that were asking for the soul of your children. You know, and that's one of those challenges. I think if the soul of our children are not moving toward Christ and they're giving it to somewhere else, there's going to be a price to be paid, and it probably won't be now. It's going to be when they're 18, 19, and 25. And I would exhort you, us as a church, we need to be praying for our parents like never before because it is a hard world. I watch my son and my daughter live in this world, and I go, I think it's much more difficult than it was when we were growing, when I was parenting. But see, wanting success, wanting God, would you just do it the way that I want it, really isn't new. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. I want to just walk through some, a couple passages this morning. I'm going to do it real quick. We're not going to get real deep here. But I want to give you an example of a religious man who believed that God should make him successful. Now, it's a very pointed passage, and there's a lot here I'm going to leave out. And, but I just want to, I'm going to read through it and then drill down and I'll stop after some of the verses here. But look at Luke 18, verse, uh, verse 18. The context, a young man, there, people are coming around Jesus, a young man approaches him and look what it says. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. Now, this man, just to stop a second, this man knew that something was missing in his life. And that Jesus held the keys to that answer. He was already successful. He was a ruler. It was a place where he got respect. Looking forward, you'll see that he already had money. But he viewed himself as successful in the spiritual world. He looked at how he was doing with following the commandments. And you know what? Check that one off. I'm doing pretty well. But in order to have this ultimate thing, he knew that Jesus had something that was missing. And there were some doubts for him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's a key word in here. It's the word inherit. We tend to think of this word as an inheritance when somebody dies and it's given to you. But that's actually not the correct way to look at it here. You could translate this word acquire or earn. Okay, so that's really it's not a free thing. What he's doing, he's asking, what other work must I do to earn the ultimate prize in the spiritual world? See, he believed that he could earn it, he could work for it, and that he could be spiritually successful if he did that. But for him, salvation was an earned reward. And Jesus, tell me what to work hard at. What do I need to do in order to, be, to get this? See, he, he's successful in the physical world, in the spiritual world, and he's working hard. But in essence, what's he doing? He's bartering for his salvation. And what didn't he realize? See, he didn't realize that he actually needed to be rescued from his perceived spiritual success. He believed falsely, and oftentimes, like many Christians today, and for your notes, I said it this way, a false belief. Some followers of Christ believe that working hard is the pathway to spiritual success. God, if I just work hard, what do I need to do? And then obviously, you must bless me. Well, let me keep going in the passage here. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now understand what Jesus is doing here. He's using a physical illustration, go sell everything, as a picture or a window into the spiritual world. Because going and selling wasn't really the issue. And what was really Jesus saying? And let me kind of frame it for you here in this next comment for your, for your notes on your, on your outline there. See, spiritual success only comes when we declare spiritual bankruptcy and begin to follow Jesus. He wanted Jesus 
and wanted God to affirm his success. I followed, I, I did, kept all the commandments. I'm respected. He wanted to be affirmed as a, a leader. And then he was hoping that there was just one thing that Jesus could give him that would kind of get him over the top. And Jesus turns the tables on him. And God, you don't get it. He goes, you've got to become spiritually bankrupt. See, that's the issue. That's the issue. But let me go on to the next few verses because the rest of the story is often ignored when we teach it. I don't know if you catch this. See, we love to point to that rich young ruler and, and yeah, I, you know what? I'm willing to give up all my riches to follow Jesus. And I think most Christians really believe that. If it meant salvation, would we walk away all of our stuff and go, yeah. But here's where it becomes a little harder. Listen to the words, the next one, 26. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Now, I think Peter's a little bit nervous here. I really do. Peter would not have viewed himself as the poor. He had a business of fishing. Now, he didn't have a lot of money, but there were the, the desperate, the outcasts. The, those were the poor people, the beggars. And you see the response that Peter said, Jesus, look at us. We've walked away from everything for you and followed you. You catch the nervousness of Peter here? I think he held up at his hand. And, and then look at the response that Jesus responds. Verse 29, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house. And now it's going to, folks, it's going to get a little personal here. Or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. With riches, he added wife, brothers, parents, children to be within the kingdom of God. They're no different than money. See, money was this man's idol, his God. But what Jesus is pushing here, he's saying marriage, a family, and children can become idols just like money. And I believe this, relationships as idols is far more subtle than riches. Do you catch how hard that is of what he's saying? And we want to explain that away too quickly. But, but i got to move on. I need to give you a big picture of God here because there's a bit of a counterpoint See, in bartering with God, this attitude, God, I'll serve you, you make me successful, even in the non-money stuff, the relational stuff, we feel pretty good. We feel pretty good offering our services to God. See, we believe that, uh, God, I just need to obey you and serve you. And that's the right thing. But do you realize, i got to cough here a second, <coughs> you realize that Paul 
before Christ interrupted his life, Paul also viewed his spiritual life as successful. If you do a study on Paul sometime, look at that. He was passionately believing that he was serving God. He was like this rich young ruler. He believed that he was spiritually successful and accounted and that he was serving for God. And then all of a sudden, God interrupts his life and there's a conversion. And Paul began to do some switching in his beliefs. And I want to read you an example of a switch that that he took when he came to faith in Acts chapter 17. I want to put this on the screen. Now Luke is really quoting Paul here. And it says this, The God who made, he's speaking to the men at Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. But look at this statement, verse 45, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Do you understand the switch there? Paul realized that God doesn't need men and women to serve him. Have we, you catch how big that is in any way. You know, and if this message actually is true, then people looking for success who think that they can negotiate and barter with God really are deluding themselves. That their service, they're doing stuff for Him, even their faith at times, this is really good, God, you've got to bless me. It's worthless. He doesn't need it. But, but here's the big view of God I, I think we've got to remember. Our Heavenly Father doesn't need our service. But guess what? He does love and He desires. He loves to serve us. He wants to serve us. He wants to serve us. We can't serve God. Really, it doesn't mean anything. It's not going to gain anything. Now, I would say, do we need to serve him? Yes, but out of an act of worship, we serve because he's a great God. And it's not to pay him back because he doesn't need our stuff. But we worship because we love him. But here's what I want to show you another, just to reinforce it. Look at Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, for those that take pride in serving Jesus and the Father, this is not really good news, because it takes away any kind of boasting. But for those who feel morally desperate and hopeless before a holy and an infinite God, this is good news. See, the great news, this is good news for the unsuccessful for broken people, that the Father is willing and looking to serve broken people. The Father and the Son are looking to serve those who need mercy. And the Father gave the Son to serve us. You see how easy it is to create a small God where we go, we have to serve Him and we barter with Him and Lord, make us successful in this transition that's going on or transaction. See, the reality of the gospel, the gospel doesn't mean that Jesus put a sign in the ground that said, now help wanted. I need help. 
He doesn't need our help. And I think too often we think that Jesus came to recruit workers and servants for himself. He doesn't need us. Have we really believed that? He doesn't need us. I remember growing up singing onward Christian soldiers like Jesus is coming back and recruiting an army to work with him against Satan. Folks, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. And that's really good news if you ponder that. So he's set, not setting up a job fair at some college where he's looking to attract the smart or the young or the, the, the workers who are going to keep the kingdom afloat. We have a big God. He doesn't need us. And he actually wants to turn around and he goes, I don't need you, but I want to serve you. Now, how does he do it? Well, let me, let me fill in that last bullet there for you. Jesus came to serve us because we need him. See, that's the issue. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. See, the pursuit of whatever we define success pushes us to a place where we don't need him at times. And it's why that, you know, why that rich young man he turned his back and walked away and he was sad because he really didn't want to give up. He really didn't need where Jesus wanted him to go. Now, I understand that we need him and he serves us in countless ways. And I can't spend the time this morning to do it. But even in this verse, it, why? Because he, he gave his life as a ransom for us. He paid the price for our sins. That's one way we need him. See, we, we keep thinking, though, that we need to be successful, work hard for Jesus, so he blesses us. And what does he want? He just wants us to recognize that we need him. The rich young ruler, he missed it. He kept thinking, if I just had the right actions, the right stuff that I could do, it would tip me over the edge of, of, of this spiritual success that he wanted and what did he miss he missed the person of jesus standing right in front of him he needed jesus and he wanted to earn something do you see what jesus is doing with us the father is doing it with us see at times we get trapped in saying oh i gotta work and barter with god in order to prop myself up in feeling successful spiritually or whatever, even happiness in this world. And he keeps coming back and saying, depend on me. You're needy. And when we admit that we need him, and when we open our hands to him, when we become spiritually bankrupt, what does he do? He serves us. He serves us. In many ways, I think there's three kinds of people in this world. Those that are working hard for Jesus to get something from him. And then there's those that are running as fast away from Jesus. They don't just walk away sad. They've, they've turned and they're just running in the other direction. And then there are those who run toward Jesus knowing that they need him. 
That's the option that we must pick. And, and, and maybe there's people even here today that you have never understood your spiritual bankruptcy. The effort in your life has, has propped you up. But folks, that's where he meets us. Is when we say, I give up. I'll give away my independence. I'll give away the idea of needing respect and other people admiring me and the fame and all of the stuff that goes with it. And see, he, he invites us because he goes, I want to serve you. What an invitation. I want to serve you. Would you just give up control? And why does, what's the success about? He does make us successful at that point when he serves us, but it's not about earthly stuff. What he's doing is making us holy and more beautiful for his bride, for the, as, as a bride, for his son. That's what God is doing for us. And it's why he serves us. He wants to serve us to make us more beautiful. We have a heavenly father that's waiting and saying, I want to serve you. Don't worry about the God of success and earning and bartering. Let's stand and pray.